Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Good morning, everybody. My name is Bob O'Bannon, one of the pastors here on staff at New Life. And I would encourage you to open your Bible at this point to the book of Titus in the New Testament. <clears throat> we'll be looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9 this morning. Uh, one of the uh, very frequent charges that has been brought against the Church of Jesus Christ over the years has uh, gone something like this. People will say, um, I have nothing against God, I have nothing against Jesus, I just don't like organized religion. You don't have to look far to find people who have said this. In fact, maybe you've said this yourself, and maybe you're thinking this even today, but many people have expressed this sentiment. The singer Neil Young, I'm not into organized religion. The actor, Will Smith, I don't believe in organized religion. Jesse Ventura, organized religion is a sham. And TV personality Julia Child, years ago, said, I hate organized religion. Now, we should acknowledge that many people have had bad experiences in the church, and uh, that is something that we should acknowledge and um, express our sorrow over. That's a very regrettable thing. But uh, a question that I would ask in response to these charges against the church is simply this. How can the church possibly not be organized? Uh, If you think of what we expect from other sectors of our society, we always expect organization. Um, We want our schools to be organized. We want our banks to be organized. We want our healthcare system, hospitals, to be organized. And in fact, if we, in our engagement with these institutions, find that they're not organized, we're quite upset about that. And we might leave saying they're so disorganized. Well, when we get to this topic of the organization of the church, we're talking about something that is called polity or church government. Now, this is not um, a particularly exciting topic, maybe for many. It certainly doesn't have the same kind of allure as something like a sermon on the Antichrist, but uh, church government polity is a little bit like the roof on your house or your air conditioner, or your furnace, and that is that you don't pay a lot of attention to it until something goes wrong, and then suddenly you're very interested in it, and you're asking lots of questions, like whose fault is this? How did we get to this point? Who's responsible, etc. Sadly, sometimes when we start asking those questions, it's too late. A guy named Guy Waters <coughs> has written this, about church government, that it is a critical part of Christian discipleship. Have you, have you ever thought of church government as being part of your discipleship as a Christian? Guy Waters says that it is. The government of the church is something in which every Christian should have a keen interest. Well, at New Life, we are going through a sermon series called Route 66, and we are just moving through the Bible one book at a time, one sermon per Bible book, and we have been in the New Testament for a while. In particular, we've been in the letters of Paul, 
And as a subset of the letters of Paul, we have what are called these pastoral epistles. Three letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, all addressing the issue of uh, the organization of the church and proper church order. And today we are in this book of Titus in this first chapter which deals specifically with this topic. So, the book of Titus written, as I just mentioned, by the apostle Paul. Uh, <clears throat> Paul is uh, writing to this man named Titus and you can see that just in verse four of our text, to Titus, my true child in the common faith. And uh, Titus is in a place called Crete and so um, if you can look at the map here you'll notice that Crete is uh, located in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea. It's just south of what is now modern-day Greece and north of the continent of Africa. And so uh, this is where churches have been planted, and so Paul is addressing Titus in this place called Crete. We think this uh, letter was written around 65-66 AD, so again a little bit later in um, Paul's life and ministry. Themes would include the relationship between faith and practice, uh, as well as false teaching, as we talked about last week, and of course this subject of church order or church organization. So, let's read this passage, see what the Lord has to say to us through the book of Titus. Again, we'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior." To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery, or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. God, again, we call on you to send your spirit to open our hearts and our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, today we're going to look at, first of all, the foundation of the church, then the organization of the church, and then we'll look at uh, the leadership of the church, that is, qualifications for leaders of the church. So, first... Uh, this, the foundation of the church, which we see in verses one through three. The first thing to note here is that there is nothing in all the world like the church. There's no institution in all of human history like the church. 
The church is not a human institution. The church is not our idea. It's not humanity's idea. It's not like uh, some people were sitting around one day thinking that they needed something to do on a Sunday morning. So maybe we can get a church together. It's not like people were thinking um, we need an opportunity to get together with others and um, maintain social connections and be with our friends or we need a vehicle or a means by which we can address social problems in our culture. And so let's start a church. Uh, That's not how it worked. The church didn't start in the mind of man. The church is a divine institution. The church is God's idea. God created the church and he put as the foundation of the church the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you'll see that here in these first three verses of Titus chapter 1. So Paul introduces himself here in the first few words of verse 1 and he goes on to talk about um, that this is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. God's elect. He's talking about God's chosen people, those that God predestined for salvation from before the foundation of the world. But he is speaking here of the faith of God's elect. So these are people who have put faith in Jesus Christ. These are not people saved because they're uh, good moral people. God didn't elect them based on their morality. These are people who have placed faith in Jesus for salvation. Nonetheless, these elect have believed in the knowledge of the truth in verse 1, which accords with godliness, it says. So these people aren't saved by their godliness, but they are saved for godliness. God has appointed them not only for salvation, but for good works. And all of this is happening, verse 2, in the hope of eternal life. That is, the eternal life that was won by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross and then overcame, triumphed over the powers of death in his resurrection. That's the essence of the gospel. But notice Paul goes on and says in verse 2 that this hope of eternal life by this God who always fulfills his promises and never lies, this was promised before the ages began in eternity past. So again, this is not something, the church is not something that man invented within history. This was God's idea before history, before the ages began. Now, how then did that gospel message get to your ears and to my ears? And the answer is in verse 3. Paul goes on and says that at the proper time, that is in God's wisdom and providence, or in the fullness of time, as Paul says in, in Galatians, what happened is that the word came to people through the preaching of the gospel. And so this gospel that was in God's mind was then entrusted to certain people who were then given the charge of preaching that to people. And those people are called apostles. And so if you go back to the start of verse 1, you'll see that that's how Paul identifies himself. He's a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul's an apostle. Go back down to verse 3, and you'll see this preaching, Paul says, was entrusted to him by the command of God our Savior. God chose Paul to be an apostle. This is what an apostle is. It's someone who was entrusted with a very privileged and honored task of preaching Jesus' message, preaching Jesus' teaching, his life, his death, and his resurrection, declaring that to people 
writing it down even in the New Testament so we can read about it today. That's the job of the apostle, the apostles. They're more than just Paul. And so through the apostolic teaching, what happened is that the foundation of the church was laid. And so you'll see this very clearly here in Ephesians chapter 2. This is also Paul. He says to the Ephesians, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's a reference to the church. The church then is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So do you see how this is working? This is the church that is beginning in the mind of God as he elects his people from before the foundation of the world, sends his son to die for them and to be risen from the dead. Then he appoints and trusts to apostles this task of preaching this message as the foundation of the church. Now, here is where so many Christians go wrong. At this point specifically, here is where Christians very often err And that is that they say, yeah, I have faith in Jesus. I'm pursuing godliness. I have eternal life. I know that. I have a relationship with Jesus. I know Jesus loves me. Jesus lives in my heart. What else is there? And people stop at the end of verse 3 and they don't go any further. Here's what a guy named Herman Bobink says. The purpose of election is not to pick up a few people at random, to bring them to salvation, and then to let them stand loosely alongside of each other as single individuals. No, in this election, God aims at nothing less than placing Christ as mediator at the head of his church and to conform the church then to the body of Christ. Paul doesn't end here at verse 3. He goes on now to talk about the church and the centrality of the church. As John Calvin once said, if you have God as your father through Jesus Christ, you also have the church as your mother. They go together. That's the way families work. I mean, think about it. Think about physical birth. When a child is born into this world physically, that child is immediately born to a mother and a father. And in some cases, to brothers and sisters as well. Now, I know there are some um, exceptions to that because not all families are set up in exactly that way. But in normal circumstances, that's the way it works. A child is born into a family immediately. The child isn't given an option to opt out of that family relationship when the baby is born into the world. Immediately, the child is born into a family. Spiritually speaking, it's actually the same way. When you're born again, by the Spirit of God, you're born into a family, and that is the family of the church, your brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, and you don't have an option of opting out of that. If you're a Christian, you've been born into a family and a member of that family. Another way to think of this is to consider this metaphor that's being used uh, of a foundation that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Think of a foundation What is the purpose of a foundation? That is, you know, you're driving down the road and you see the cement laid and there's a foundation there on somebody's property. What is the purpose of that foundation being laid? Is it so that the foundation can remain there indefinitely and people can then set up their furniture on the foundation without a house or without a building? 
Well, of course not. A foundation is laid so something can be built on top of it. A structure, a house, a building. And the foundation of the apostles was laid so that something could be built upon it. And that is the household of God. The church built on the foundation of the apostolic teaching. If you're a Christian and you're not part of a church, you're not involved in a church, it's just like you're living on a foundation with no house. You're out in the cold, you're exposed to the elements. There's no protection, there's no shelter. When anybody drives by a foundation and nothing's built on it, and let's say they continue to drive by and years pass and there's no foundation built on it, what do we say? We say that is something unfinished. That is something incomplete. And that is certainly true of the Christian who seeks to live apart from the church. So, here's what Paul tells us. The foundation of the church is the gospel given to us through the apostles. Now, we move on, secondly, to the organization of the church. So, these points are kind of trickling down. It starts with God's intent before the foundation of the world, and now it's trickling down to Individual congregations on the earth, what, what should they look like? Should they be organized? Let's see what Paul says. So again, here's what Paul's doing. He's you know, been on many missionary journeys. He's uh, a church planter. He starts churches all over um, this area of the world, and he has started churches in this place called Crete. And you get to verse 5, and you see that Paul says to Titus, Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. So Paul had to leave. Titus is left there. Paul cannot continue to minister there, but Titus can. And so the purpose for which Titus was left is there in verse 5. So that you might put what remained into order. Paul wants there to be order in the church. In other words, he wants the church to be organized. Now, of course, it's true that there are certain churches that can be so over-organized or hyper-organized that policy, etc., can strangle out uh, ministry and even the work of the Spirit. But if you look at the Scriptures, you will notice that God is very clearly a God of order. I mean, just go back to the very beginning. How did he create? Six days, specific creations, events happening in each day. Look at the formation of the tabernacle very specific instructions that God gives for how the tabernacle should be built, how it should be organized, how it should be led. Instructions about the temple, very specific detailed directions for how that temple should be built. God, the God of the Bible is, is not a reckless God. He, he's not a careless God. He's not a casual God. He's a God who wants a certain kind of order in the way things are done in the world, and in particular, in the church. And that's what we're seeing here in verse 5. Titus, I left you there to put the place in order. Now, how then, specifically, is the church to be organized? Well, let's acknowledge one thing right off the bat here, and that is that there actually is quite a bit that we might wish that God would tell us about how the church should be organized that he doesn't. There is a, left, a lot that's left open. I mean, the scriptures don't tell us how we're supposed to dress when we come to worship. Scriptures don't tell us 
what time worship services are supposed to start or for how long worship services should last or what instruments we should be using as we play music. A lot of things left open. But something we are told very specifically, and perhaps this highlights the importance of this. This is one thing that God did make sure he told us about how the church should be organized, and that is that the church should be led by elders. Verse 5, Titus, put what remained into order and do this, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. In every church, appoint elders. Now you might ask at this point, why not appoint apostles? Why doesn't this say appoint apostles? Paul is an apostle, there's other apostles. Why aren't apostles appointed to lead the church and the reason, the answer to that is simply this, that the apostles, as I said a moment ago, were entrusted with preaching, teaching the apostolic doctrine as a foundation for the church. And once that foundation was laid, the office of the apostle has expired. It was a temporary office. It served a temporary purpose. And so once the doctrine is written down in the New Testament, what we're finding here in these later letters of the New Testament is that Paul is now forming these new offices of elder and deacon to kind of pick up where the apostles left off. And so we see the office of apostle fading out, the offices of elder and deacon fading in. But one thing very important to notice is that the word elder here is plural in verse 5. Appoint elders. Paul doesn't seem to have in mind a church organization or government where there's one elder over multiple churches, which we see in some other church government situations. Not one elder over multiple churches, but multiple elders in each church. That's the model here. And that's the model actually throughout the New Testament, as we'll see in many other places. For instance, in Acts 14.23, and when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, um, 1 Peter 5, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you, plural, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Here's Peter, by the way, if there's one guy who would qualify to be a pope or a, a, a bishop over several churches, it would be Peter, but Peter identifies himself as one among other elders. He's not the only elder. He serves the church alongside other elders. And then James 5 also is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. So it seems pretty clear that what the New Testament is teaching us is that God wants his churches, his congregations, to be organized under the leadership and governance of elders. Well, you might say, well, okay, exactly how is this supposed to work? And so let me just give kind of a test case or an example of, of how this works. And it just seems like a very obvious uh, example to talk about is the fact that right now you're watching this service at home through a computer. We are not meeting here in the sanctuary as we normally would. Whose decision was that? Who decided that? Did I decide that as the pastor? Did I tell everybody that this is the way it's going to be? No. Did the PCA, our denomination, did they decide that? Did they order all of us to not meet? No. Did you, as the congregation, decide this? 
Did we have a congregational meeting and take a vote, and then majority vote said we wouldn't meet, and so that's why we're not meeting? Well, no, that's not the answer either. The answer is the elders of the church made that decision. The elders got together, we talked, we discussed, we prayed, we deliberated, and decided that this was the best approach to the current situation, that we would not meet publicly in the sanctuary, but we would show these services by video. Now, you might say, well, who decides who's going to be an elder in the church? Who makes that decision? Was that me? Did I decide who was going to be elders? Do I, have I surrounded myself with a bunch of yes men by just choosing who I want to be among the elders? No, actually. And in fact, I will say that that's something that I try hard not to get my fingers into too much. Um, that is not my responsibility to put elders on our session who I want to be on, on the session. I, I, I don't do that, and it's not my responsibility. Did the PCA, did our denomination appoint those elders and tell us who should be the elders? No, that's not the answer either. But the answer in this case is you, the congregation of New Life. You decided who these elders would be. You nominated these men. You elected these men. You gave your approval for these men to lead this church. So this decision that has been made to not worship is in part uh, traced back to you who chose the men that you wanted to lead this congregation. Bottom line principle here is that nobody leads a local congregation apart from the approval of the congregation. Nobody can lead this church unless you want them to, New Life. And in fact, we have uh, an ordination vow that members of the church take, and so it might be appropriate just to remind you members of this ordination vow. Number five, the question was this, do you submit yourself to the government or the polity or the elders and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace. And so if you're a member of the church, you answered yes to this. And so you put yourself under the authority of the elders. Now, does this mean that you don't have any say in the matter and that you just have to kind of slavishly do whatever we say? Well, no, that's not the case either. And in fact, we invite the members of this church to express to us their comments and even disagreements and dissent about decisions that are made. We, we welcome that. And in fact, that happened in this current situation. The elders did decide that we wouldn't be meeting publicly, but we did hear from somebody in the church, a member of the church, who expressed to us his disagreement. And he expressed his view in a very gracious and respectful way, in a very biblical way, in a very well-reasoned way. And many of the points that, that he made are uh, very much worthy of our consideration. But there was something else in the way he expressed his dissent. And that is, he expressed it in a way that I think all of us know as elders that uh, indicated his ultimate willingness to submit to the decisions that his elders have made. Uh, there wasn't any kind of hint of kind of re rebellion or hostility. It was, here's my view and here's why I think you made the wrong decision but in the end, I submit to my elders. And I just think that is a very helpful, instructive, godly, good model for how this should work. And so we, we, we welcome, we welcome your dissent. Maybe you have opinions yourselves about how 
um, this should play out. And even though we don't agree with this particular individual, we will take his comments very seriously, particularly as we think about when we're going to reassemble again as a congregation. But bottom line principle here is that the New Testament assumption seems to be this. Not only that you're a part of a church, but that you're part of an organized church. That is a church run by elders. If you're looking for a church and you find a church that's run by just one man by himself, that's a red flag. That's a red flag. You're called by the New Testament example to be part of a church led by elders. John Stott says this, the Lord didn't add people to the church without saving them and he didn't save them without adding them to the church. Salvation and church membership went together and they still do. Last thing to consider. Okay, again, points are trickling down. The church starts in the mind of God as the gospel is laid, trickles down to the organization of local congregations. And now, how about those individuals who are called to serve as elders, the leaders of the church? What should they look like? What should they be like? What is the qualifications for those men? And that's what Paul talks about here in the remaining verses six through nine. Now, I should stop to, to acknowledge that there is another office in the church, and that is the office of deacon. And that office is described in more detail in 1 Timothy 3, along with a uh, description of the elders and the office of, of deacon, or deacons are responsible primarily for taking care of the property and the building, and mercy needs in the congregation and in the community, and the office of deacon is, is very important, and so I don't want to give the impression I'm overlooking that office, but our passage here is speaking only about elders, and so we're going to focus on the office of elder. Elders are called to guide the congregation spiritually. They're called primarily for um, the task of shepherding and discipleship of the congregation, and there are certain qualifications that are necessary according to the scriptures for a man to be an elder. And these qualifications we could break down into two categories. And the first one is a category of character, which we see in verses six through eight. We can divide this up even further. There are family responsibilities here mentioned in verse six. The elder should be someone who is a husband of one wife, devoted to his one wife, if the elder has children, those children should be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That is, they're living a generally respectable lifestyle. Um, we also see that uh, there are qualifications for relationships with others. Uh, verse seven, see the elder is one who should not be arrogant, so elders should be humble. Uh, they should not be um, quick-tempered. Uh, they shouldn't be argumentative. They shouldn't be quarrelsome. Um, they should have a certain attitude toward uh, outsiders, I guess we could say. They do good to all, a lover of good, that they're also hospitable, that is, they're willing to serve, to, to open their home for others to come in, these are all touching on the elder's relationship with others. Humble people, not argumentative, doing good to all through hospitality in particular. And then thirdly, there's um, the character qualification of just the person's individual life. And you see in verse seven that they uh, should not be 
addicted to substances of any sort. We see that they shouldn't be a drunkard or a greedy for gain. They shouldn't be driven by uh, the desire to be rich and materialism. And then the end of verse 8 goes on to list other qualities. Self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Now, you might respond to all this and say, so does a person have to be perfect to be an elder? I mean, is that what the scriptures are requiring? And uh, the answer to that is, is no, of course. Um, every elder here at New Life will be the first to admit that we are all great sinners. And we are all in need of grace. And we all acknowledge our great inadequacy for this task. And in fact, when we talk to people who are nominated to be elders, we're always very encouraged when the man comes and says, you know, one of my hesitations is that I just feel so inadequate for this. We think that's a good sign. We're on the right road. And that would apply to all of us. We're all sinners in need of grace. That's the essence of being a Christian. We know that there's nothing good in us, and the only thing that makes us qualified for this is that God has called us to it and in his grace equipped us for it. So maybe the best way to sum up this qualification of the elder is this word above reproach and it's there in verses uh, six and seven. It's mentioned twice actually. Above reproach. The elder must be above reproach. Not perfect but above reproach. That is a person whose life is generally worthy of imitation we might say. Or a person whose pattern of life adorns the gospel and doesn't bring embarrassment to it. It'd be a good way to sum up the quality, uh, the qualification of an elder with regard to character. But there's a, a second thing here. There are also qualifications related to doctrine in verse 9. So he must hold firm, it says, to the trustworthy word as taught. That means the elder must not be a person who is shifting and changing his view all the time depending on what the culture happens to say. Uh, the elder is not the person who says, oh look, uh, gay marriage is legal in the United States so I guess we better reevaluate our position on that. That's not the biblical elder. He holds firm to the trustworthy word as it has been passed down over the years. And he's also able to Teach sound doctrine. Give instruction in sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is what is summarized in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, That's our tradition, also contained in the Apostles and Nicene Creeds. Uh, We would say that these confessions summarize the sound doctrine that we expect an elder to teach and hold to. And then the last thing there in verse 9 is that this elder should also be able to have the, the courage, the fortitude actually, to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. A guy named Art Azurdia says this, today the church faces a moral crisis within her own ranks. Her failure to take a strong stand against evil and her tendency to be more concerned about what is expedient than what is right has robbed the church of biblical integrity and power. An elder needs to be able to say that's wrong and correct a person who's holding unsound doctrine in a gentle, kind, and loving way, but to offer a rebuke nonetheless. So that's what Paul tells us here about uh, the organization of the church. After looking at this, we just have to say, we have to concur. We have to say, yes, the church is organized. We don't offer any apology for that. This is not something to be 
hated or resented. This is something to be revered, something to be honored, and something to be cherished. A guy named James Bannerman says this, the church, more than the individual Christian, is set forth as the highest and most glorious embodiment and manifestation of divine power and grace upon earth. What a privilege it is to be part of organized religion. More specifically, what a privilege it is to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you again for your word, for the instruction that you give us, for the hope that you give us. And oh Lord, I pray for your blessings upon new life as a church, for your blessings, Lord, upon our denomination and presbytery, for your blessings upon all churches throughout the world, assembled under elders and proclaiming the apostolic doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.